Hello, and welcome back to the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast, Conversations with Sound Artists. We've got a little special thing for you today. A while back, we went out to the studios of uh, WNYC, the public radio station in New York City, and did a Dolby Institute case study about the sound design of Radiolab, which is one of my absolute favorite uh, radio shows and podcasts that are out there. And we had a long, great conversation with Jad Abumrad, uh, who is the creator of the show, and he's the host and producer of it. And we really talked with him about his influences and how he uses sound design creatively for storytelling on the on the show Radiolab. And it was such a great conversation, and we can only use a, like a few brief pieces from it from the video that we did which is posted on dolby.com institute but i thought it would be great to bring you the entire unedited interview so this is the conversation that i had recently with uh, jad abumrad and jad is just a, a, an amazing kind of renaissance uh guy he created the radio lab show in 2005 after really having a, a background in music composition and a long career in radio production interestingly in, in 2011 he was he was uh, given a MacArthur Fellowship, the Genius Grant, and I'm going to read here. The foundation cited his engaging audio explorations of scientific and philosophical questions, which captivate listeners and bring to broadcast journalism a distinctive new aesthetic while using his background as a composer to orchestrate dialogue, music, and sound effects into compelling documentaries that draw listeners into investigations of otherwise intimidating topics. So I couldn't say it better than the MacArthur Fellows did, so that's what they thought about Jad. And he was the perfect person to talk to about explorations and sound design. So here with our, uh, our conversation with Jad Abumrad. So here's our conversation with Jad. And I started off by asking him, how has Radiolab changed uh, in the uh, 10 or 11 years since he started the show? God, and uh, everything has changed about Radiolab. I mean, well, I don't know. It's funny. Like, I just uh, recently listened to the very first Radiolab. This was back in the era when it was just me, 8 p.m. Sunday nights. Ellen, producer, hadn't yet jumped on board. Robert hadn't met him yet. Um, and I heard in that show, I mean, I sound like a total ass. My voice is like an octave up. It's Everything is different, but you hear the same sort of weird uh, genetic material, like the use of sound, the way that the sound and the music and the tape is kind of in this weird counterpoint. That was already there. So there's aspects of the show stylistically that have been consistent, um, but I just feel like what we do now, the stories we do now are in a different category. I mean, it's actual, it's actual journalism. It's actual, like we're actually trying to discover things and notions like fact checking now are like just part of our everyday. Uh, whereas before, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know <laughs> no, A, I had, I'm not sure I really had a correct relationship with the facts, and B, no one was listening. So, you know, a lot has changed about Radiolab. I mean, the sound has changed. I think we actually do less, a lot more silences, a lot more openness, um, a lot more contrast between thick parts and really thin parts. Um, back when it started, it was very dense and fast and quick all the time from sort of start to finish. So I'm sure this is one of your favorite questions, but how do you describe Radiolab to people who aren't familiar with the show? It's always been a really hard show to describe. Um, I don't know. I mean, I could describe it. I, I, here, I describe it different ways depending on the day of the week. I mean, I could describe it in terms of form. It's like, okay, two guys getting together, 
and taking a whirlwind joyride through the landscape of one idea, you know, time, space, consciousness, uh, whatever it is. And these two guys are just really happy to, to be in each other's company and to think about this thing together. And so they bicker and they argue and they storytell to one another. And then every so often a little thought bubble will sort of drift off from one of their heads and then open up and then you're in a story, you know, or a scientist. I sometimes think of it like Robert and I worked, uh, Robert and I met at, uh, when we met, when he was working at ABC, so I guess we met up at 60 something. But we would have breakfast once a month uh, at this diner and we would just sit there and we would just have conversations which were sort of radio labby, you know. He'd be telling me a story and I would bounce off of it and we'd kind of go back and forth. And I think of the show as a hyper-textual, hi-fi version of that conversation. Like we're both, now it's like multi-dimensional where you're in a diner, but there are smart people at the table next door and the thought bubble comes out and takes you into some new dimension of a story. Uh, but it's still ultimately just two guys talking and I, I kind of filter the construction of the show through that memory in a way, as a way of keeping it feeling like it's ultimately about a friendship, I think. Um, I could talk about it that way. I could talk about it as, um, it's about, it's a show that tries to lead people to moments of wonder, you know, in its many forms, uh, to take some bit of complexity and walk right into it and try and decode it, uh, not simplify it, but find some moment of wonder within it. So. I could think of it that way. It's some kind of weird collision between science and philosophy and music uh, and storytelling and interviews and drama and everything that radio has ever done. I feel like it's some, some crazy mashup of all these different things. Um, but ultimately it's just two guys talking, you know? So it's some weird kind of, you can talk about it on different levels. And I get confused when I try to describe it to people. I should have like the one sentence, uh, but I've never had the one sentence. Uh, it's just somehow, but maybe that's good. Maybe that means it's still worth doing if I can't figure out how to talk about it. So when you're looking at different subjects or thinking about new stories, um, is that going on in some level of your, of your mind? Are, are you thinking about where the hooks are for you to get in from a sound design or a music perspective? Yeah, I mean, at this point it's like, it happens almost unthinkingly, you know? I mean, most of the conversations we have are about story and about structure and about character and about questions that we wanna get answers to and just sort of standard stuff. Um, but for me, like it's weird. When I work, um, it could be on paper, you know? And I'll be like just typing a script, but then I'll start to sort of see in the way that the language is parsing and the ideas are kind of sequencing. I'm like, oh, okay, right there, that's a turn. Okay, so that's gonna be a spot where music's gonna wanna enter to sort of punctuate that turn. And right here, it's weird. It's like right here, that's very visual. Okay, so this is the visual, this is the movie right here. This is where we're gonna make a movie. And isn't it interesting, this, this bit of tape right there, do you hear the way they have that really staccato T, that you're like, oh, that's that, I've, I wanna bring in something right there. You know, I just these kinds of weird fragments of thoughts just sort of filter in during the story construction. Uh, it's not actually a separate process. It's like, 
we're just going out there doing interviews, doing the stuff normal journalists do. But there is this weird kind of below the level of discourse uh, musical life that just sort of intrudes, you know? And for me, that's just, that's just how I operate. I mean, I started as a musician and that part of me is like poking its head up in all the different gaps of the story. Um, and now the entire staff sort of thinks that way. You know, everybody has, this, I think, a shared sensibility. I mean, I, I know you talked to Dylan, and Dylan kind of thinks about story shape and punctuation and the different moves we have, and it just sort of, like, everybody has those ideas. You know, we'll have a story meeting, we're like, oh, man, wouldn't it be amazing to hear that little moment right here? And, like, we talk about, we talk about the explainer and when would the explainer come in, and everybody sort of has a shared way of talking about it now. Um, but, uh, but it's not, it's not separate. It just somehow happens. How has your training as a musician affected your approach to the show? It's just kind of my lens, you know, it's the lens through which I see everything. Um, it's, uh, it's why I'm doing radio and not print, you know? Uh, there's something powerful to me still about the fact that this is a sound medium and that the anchor of it is the voice, you know, and just that basic experience of like a disembodied voice in the darkness and the way that just kind of hits you, it physically hits you. Um, the way that sound vibrates and moves through the air and collides with bodies. There's just something very, everything I need somehow starts there. Um, and, um, but increasingly it's funny, I mean increasingly like music becomes a metaphor for me becomes a way of translating some of these ideas. Uh, we did a, a show about um, colors. You can't even really see colors on the radio. And that entire show was finding certain musical ways to translate colors. What does a mantis shrimp that has 16 rods and cones in its eyes, and we have like four, I think three, most of us, and some of us have four. Like what, could it, what does a mantis shrimp see when it looks at the rainbow? Uh, there's no way to answer that question in, it, without, I mean, seemingly no way to answer that question without seeing it. But we used a variety of musical metaphors. We got a whole choir together and we orchestrated a whole choir uh, with different bands of uh, the visual spectrum. Each, you know, each cluster of voices represented one band. And that became our way of presenting that that information. And those kinds of those kinds of moves now are just sort of commonplace for me. It's like you use music as a metaphor to, to take something complicated and talk about it in a different way, where you hear it, where it becomes visceral and, and physical again. It's like telling stories is a deeply musical act no matter what, you know? I mean, it's, it's pitches, contours of sounds, uh, it's rhythm, you know? And any storyteller understands how to use their voice as an instrument. Uh, like Robert, listening to Robert talk, uh, it's amazing to me that he's never had any musical training because he just sort of, his voice kind of dances up and down and then it pauses and then it's syncopated just when you think it's gonna go regular. Like he has a kind of a deeply musical way about him. So there's some way in which my training as a musician just allows me to recognize that. And the, I get to, I mean, you can see right over there, it's like when, you, when you're editing something, uh, I don't know if the cameras can pick up behind me, but when you're editing something, you pull all the sound in and you put them on the computer and they exist as these little squares. 
and often in order to see the whole thing, you have to zoom out. And when you zoom out, you're, what you see are little like blocks, little tiny blocks that look very much like musical notes. And uh, you start to push them around and organize them uh, according to musical logic. You know, it's like, okay, this is sort of like counterpoint. And you've got the red line, the yellow line, the green line, the blue line, and you start to sort of see them bouncing around. But you get to a certain point where there's a lot of green and there's not enough blue. You're like, oh, you know, like Bach in his, you know, uh, I, rules of counterpoint would say that each voice has to have its own integrity. So, okay, I need more blue. So you kind of bring in the blue. And you, there becomes a kind of counterpointal logic that you think about, which is a purely musical consideration. It's not, it's not about story and journalism, although that's always what rules. And so if the music ever gets too foreground, you have to kind of pull it back. So there's that, like there's a, there's a way in which like you just recognize the inherent musicality of what you're doing. That's one, one thing. The second thing, which I think is actually even more interesting, uh, is that um, like music as not just a craft, but as an idea. Like there are a lot of ideas that film composers use when they're putting music to a story that I find very um, inspiring. Like leitmotif is like a very simple thing that a, that a film composer will do. They'll take, they'll have a character like uh, Lord of the Rings. Every time that damn ring showed up, you would hear some uh, motif, I forget what it was, just like four notes kind of. And then the composer would take those four notes and sort of twist them and permutate them and invert them and elongate them as the story progressed to show you that the nature of that character of the ring is changing throughout the story. So the music becomes almost a weird kind of uh, like um, the subconscious life, you know, of that character. The music knows something about that character that the character doesn't even know. You know, this is sort of that classic Wagner idea that like the music is this bubbling unconscious, the sub, like collective unconscious in a Jungian sense of all the stuff in the story. Uh, I love that idea. I love the idea that when you're working with music that actually the thing that knows the most about the story is the music. You know, it's coming in a beat ahead of the tape. Like it knows that something's about to happen. And so you're like, oh, as a listener, you're like, hmm, the music knows something. What's, what does it know? And you, you lean in. Um, and so I, 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 I find it very inspiring to think of music in that way as this omniscient character. Like these, you know, even, even us as producers, we're in the story, we're lost in the story, we're discovering along with these characters, but it's the music ultimately that knows everything. And I always like thinking of music in that way. And it also reminds me to be very careful about it, you know, to not, to not overstep it. Um, and for the music to only exert its influence and its godly sense of the action very, very sparingly, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a way of keeping a check on things too. And I, you know, honestly, I try not to use the kind of music that um, injects feeling. You know, I mean, I think Walter Murch had a great phrase and I think it went something like, music is like steroids. And when you inject steroids, it will make the organism stronger. It just will. But at some later cost. So like you put music to something, it will sound better. Anything will sound better with music. Uh, and you can put adagio for strings under anything and people will cry. Um, it's true. I mean, it's just a fact of that, 
of that piece. It somehow embodies such a deep longing and sadness that it gets around your defenses. Um, but like as a, as a producer, you don't want to do that. Like somehow there's a relationship you have with your audience where you don't want to force those things on them. Um, except when, it, when you've earned it, you know? But never with Adagio for strings. <laughs> so my basic idea about the, the principle I try and sort of keep in mind is that I do think that people don't want to be told how to feel or what to feel but they do want to be told what to pay attention to and what's important. And so when there are those turns in a story where you really want people to listen, like this is the important part, uh, you bring in music there just to underline those moments. And I think that's a perfectly good use of music. People, it, it can do that. It lifts any moment suddenly out of the flow of time and suddenly you're like, oh, this is better. This is more important. Something's happening here. There's some subtext here I need to be aware of. And I think that's a great use of music. Um, but you know, it's like somebody says something sad and then you want to put the sad music in. You got to do that with, with real, um, what's the word? Uh, you got to be careful with that. I always feel that. Because when I hear that as a listener, I'm like, oh, don't touch me there. You know, it's like, it's, you know, so there's a way in which when I'm making those choices, I, I, I try to be really careful. Uh, whose work do you admire, like in, in composition or, or sound design? Uh, it's weird, the, one, the thing that jumps to mind, uh, it's just the one I think of right now, uh, is um, Alexander Desplat. He's done a lot of different, I mean, he's done a million fi uh, films at this point, and uh, some of them I like better than others, but there's this one kind of aria, aria maybe? I don't know if that's the right word, but this one extended scene that he did for the movie Birth, which, um, it's the opening scene basically. And what you see is a man sort of shot from behind on a crane running through Central Park and it's snowing and he's just running down the path, running, 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 and he's winding his way down the path. And it's this beautiful open shot that just follows him running. And it's for four minutes, of just a dude running. And, um, and it would be really not a very interesting moment. Maybe it would have a certain Tarkovsky meditative quality to it, but really it wouldn't be that interesting. But except for Alexander Desplat composed this beautiful, like this little ostinato in the piccolo, and then these big sort of like uh, fourths and fifths in the bass strings. And it just sort of, you watch the guy running and you hear this music and there's some weird combination of like the, what the music does for that story is it takes this little guy who's just a guy running in a park and it makes him into like, uh, like myth. It enlarges him to the size of myth. And there's some weird, massive Shakespearean sized drama happening with this guy. And you don't know what it is yet. He's just running, you know? And there's some way, I, I find that mystifying that music can do that for that guy. It can make him so epic. It can give it a sweep to his life. It's sort of what we all want, right? You all want to have your, you want to have your lives be lived on this massive, epic scale, and somehow the music instantly does that for him. Literally in the first few moments, and I don't understand. And there's some way in which that musical moment with that scene for me is just like kind of perfection. Well, that also touches on something that I've heard Ben Burt, who is obviously a fantastic sound sound designer, talk about. Um, which he talks about the magic of the first ten minutes of the movie, and how you have this 
incredible opportunity to set the rules of the world and get the audience with you. I'm wondering, I mean, is that something, is there something like that with your radio shows as well? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I've never, I've never thought about that, but yeah, it's, del- it's definitely the, I mean, you are, that's exactly right, actually. I've never thought about it until now, but there's some way in which each, I mean, it used to be this way more so than it is recently, that the first, um, the introduction, you know, because we, we sort of followed Ira Glass's lead in that we chose not to have sort of any formal pomp in, in getting into the show. You'd hear a little sting, and then suddenly you would just drop into a story or a moment, and it would almost be midstream, and you'd have to be running to catch up. Uh, it's almost like you get seduced into this dream. And we used to work, I mean, I used to work for days on that, those three, four, six-minute intros, because uh, that's where you create the world, you know. You, and I never thought about it that way, but that's where you create the world. That's where you sort of allow people to, you tell people what's possible, what, you know. Yeah, and then they also understand the language of the storyteller and the context of what they're going to hear. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we, there's, we, our intros are, have gotten much, much shorter, almost non-existent at times. Uh, so we're in a different space now, but. Yeah, those beginnings used to be so important. And I also find that each piece in some level has to declare itself. It has to say this, this is the, it has to be a world unto itself. And so as a, when you're scoring, you kind of want to follow the lead of the story. So there are no hard and fast rules, but you do want to make some move at the beginning that declares this sonically. This is the personality of the story, um, whether it's like there's an instrumentation for this story. Okay, what is the instrumentation? You know, composers used to say, well, we're composing for a quartet or a quintet. Um, Now, since it's all basically post, you can just throw anything you want in there. But I like to think of it in that way. It's like in the first minute or two, you're making a choice that dictates all other choices. Uh, And it's a choice about instrumentation, about whether it's acoustic versus electronic, whether it's atmospheric versus very sort of uh, figurative in a way. Uh, all that stuff somehow reveals itself early in the story, or at least it should. So in the cinema world, there's a big distinction between sound effects or sound design versus music. They're separate teams, and oftentimes they don't, you know, all those elements don't meet up until they show up at the final mixing stage. Does your mind work that same way? Or or do you draw a distinction between sound design and music when you're building a Radiolab episode? No, I don't. Actually, I sort of deliberately um, disrespect that border. Um, and from what I hear about the film world, you, you might know more than me, those two people don't generally like each other. Because like the composer will do some work, and then the sound designer has to come and compensate for something the composer didn't do, so they'll take some piece from it early and layer it in. And the composer's like, why'd you touch my stuff, man? And so like there's a, there's a kind of a tension. But the, the, the distinction, as far as I can tell in the film world, is that the composer is the artiste, and the sound designer is the guy who solves problems, right? Uh, I see that as being, they're kind of the same thing in, in my world. Like the music is always trying to solve a problem. It's always responding to some moment in the story, because we tell stories that are true. So it, there's something that's happening in the story and the music is responding or it's anticipating. It's moving in concert, it's doing a dance with the story. So it's always trying to accomplish something. And more and more as the show evolves, it the music is 
saying just enough. It's, it's just, it has, it's the smallest footprint I can manage in a way. And so if you stripped away the words, I think what you would hear are basically like whooshes and drones and textures and little plucks and strange things that don't even really sound like music. It's sort of like non-music. It's like tension tones and various things that are just there to do some kind of bit of punctuation. They're tonal. How do you decide in any given moment with a piece that you're working on if you're gonna lean on sound design or lean on music? You know, how do you, how do you decide when to use a, a whoosh or when to use a musical tone? Well, sometimes you have just, you just have an idea and it, there's some deep intuition that says, you know, right there, I just, usually it's like, I couldn't tell you exactly what I want, but it's some, like, there's some sort of sense of texture. Like it's rough versus smooth, uh, percussive versus washy. You know, like you have these kinds of like intuitions. Yeah, right here I want something that's kind of percussion-y and it's got motion and it should just kind of dance. Cause this part of the story, it's the part where suddenly things kick into gear and you're like, you're no longer thinking, but you're doing. So, okay, I want something that kind of has that energy to it. And I sort of feel kind of like percussion, but I don't really know what kind of percussion, wood. You know, I kind of have these sort of like a, a, an intuition about the materials and the instruments, but not really anything more. And so then you just start playing around, you know, you'll open up some sample library of a marimba and just start playing around and then do, do that five or six different times until you get something. Generally, my first five or six ideas aren't good. Uh, simply because like you come back to it the next day and you're like, oh, it's too much, too much. So then you just sort of pull it back. Uh, and you go through that a couple of times and then you rely on the people around you. Uh, the very first thing people will tell me is like, eh, that's too much, Jad. Or, or conversely, like that moment right there, it feels underpopulated. There's something that needs to happen there, but it just, it's just falling flat. So people help me kind of cue in on things. Um, I, just, I think it's important to distrust your own intuitions as well as honor them at the same time. So um, yeah, you know, it's a lot of trial and error. I mean, generally you're working from some kind of like early idea and you're just trying to decode it. Uh, and I mean, my basic sense of it is always like, I want this stuff to feel uh, like familiar, but out of context, you know? Like I want, a sound that you might recognize, but in a context that you wouldn't, you know, like a, something that feels acoustic and of this world, but then alien. So by definition, you're always starting with something you know, but you're not quite sure how to, how to get it to that place that feels kind of strange. So a lot of what I do these days is like, I, I start with some pluck or something, some cello thing, but I don't want it to sound straight. You want it to sound like it's existing in some adjacent dimension. So you start processing it, putting it through weird reverbs that couldn't exist in the world, or you do some gnarly bit of granular synthesis or something that just kind of gives it a little bit of a, an askew. And I never quite know what I'm searching for until I hear it. Then suddenly like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. It feels, um, hello cat. It feels sort of um, familiar yet strange. So I think of it in that way, like you're always searching for things that uh, create a bridge from your ordinary mundane into some place that you can't quite conceive of. So it should have a foot in both worlds. So I want the sound to do that. 
Obviously, Radiolab is audio only, but it's very successful at evoking pictures in your listeners' minds. Are you thinking about that as you build the show? People sometimes tell me it's a very visual show, and I feel like that's one of the best compliments because it it starts from pictures, weirdly. Uh, like, if we're doing our job, I want those pictures to just be unavoidable. Like, they're just immediate, and you can't stop them. Like, I think that's part of, like, the connection of listening is, that, like, you're seeing things, and you can't help but see things. The moment that you have a choice not to see them, I feel like is when you stop listening. So part of this game of seduction as a storyteller is you want to just constantly be giving people pictures that are precise. They have to be precise pictures, but you can't use too many words because then it gets fussy. So you somehow you just give them just enough words to create that picture, almost like those seven dots and you can see a human form. Like you just give, what are the exact seven dots, the seven words I can use to make you see exactly what you need to see to keep you rooted in the story. I feel like half, that's half the battle, you know, is about making those images come alive, which is weird because you're working in radio. You know, there are no pictures here. Um, but in some weird, more cosmic way, I feel like the lack creates this vacuum that then two people have to fill, you know, you the storyteller and the person listening. And so in that way, you kind of meet to fill the void. Robert sometimes talks about it as like, you're painting a picture and I, I hand you the, the paintbrush and you finish it. And there's something deeply empathic about that, that like we're doing it together. Like with what you guys do, um, it's much more powerful, I think. It like has a very hot, like in that Marshall McLuhan way. I don't know if he said it was hot or cold, whatever that was. It has a, the temperature is hotter. Um, but as I'm watching TV, I just kind of want to sit back and let it kind of come to me. I'm not asked to lean forward in the way that you are asked when you're, uh, when you're listening to the radio. And it's that lean forward, we lean together, which is kind of cool, I like that. So as a storyteller, do you prefer working in an audio only medium? I don't know if I would prefer it. It's just somehow like, it's like instinct to me. Uh, I don't think of it in terms of preference. It's just when I imagine a story I want to tell and how would I tell it, I imagine, I imagine being able to do it invisibly <laughs> and using words and using the sounds and using a kind of composer's logic to march people through it. And not, I, do, I don't think about the pictures in literal ways. You think about like, do you think about the pictures that someone would create in their mind? But like when I talk, when I talk to you about, I don't know, what was that famous example in radio history? It's like, I'm taking a big cherry and I drop it into a giant grand canyon of whipped cream. And there's like a very famous audio drama, which makes, which was all about this. Like, I don't know if you're seeing the whipped cream as like kind of thick with those little waves, or if you're seeing it as kind of a soupy whipped cream, I mean, that's sort of your choice. So I don't imagine it on that level. I just imagine how can you draw the contours of the image so that people can fill in the rest? Does that, does that make any sense? It does, but it also, I mean, for it to work, you have to have a very specific image in your mind. And you may not describe that, but this is, a, this is an energy transference business. Is that true? I mean, maybe you're right. There's the emotional impression of it that's more important to me in some sense. Uh, I'm really bad at drawing. Like, I'm always amazed at how bad I am at drawing. I mean, Robert can draw these amazing doodles that are just like beautiful little cartoons. Uh, I'm, I'm not because somehow when I close my eyes and I imagine a picture, I don't see the details. What I see is some kind of outline or some sort of container. 
that's filled with the feeling of that picture. And so part of what you're, what you're reaching for when you're using descriptive language is you're trying to somehow describe the container so that people get what's inside. You know what I mean? Uh, it doesn't have to do with details. It has more to do with the sort of uh, the psychic impression of the thing. I know this is not making a whole lot of sense, but for me, it's like it's actually not a specific picture. Weirdly enough, uh, it's a it's a specific emotional impression of a picture. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of what happens is is this. It's so we we record a lot of musicians. That's one thing. Actually, you spoke to Dylan. Dylan like plays upright bass, and we've used him a million times to sort of. Like, Dylan, I need a bass line. He'll go in and play that. And then uh, you'll take one tiny piece of it and, you know, you run it through some plugin that does a sort of a granular synthesis looping. And it can take just the tiny tail of a, of a bass pluck and it can make it into a huge, long minute and a half drone. And that becomes like one musical idea that really is just born of one small, you know, and then that becomes something big. Um, I take the human voice a lot, you know? I'll record myself on that mic right there and do the same process. Take just like a tiny consonant and stretch it out. You can make wind and all kinds of sounds using that way, uh, using that technique. Um, I'll play like little thumb pianos into that thing and then you take just look the attack and you stick the attack on some other sound and you create kind of a hybrid sound. And again, acoustic feels familiar, but it's just weird. You're like, I've never heard that sound before, but it's, feels inviting because it's like a sound I've heard. So again, you seduce people into that weird alien world. So I'll do a lot of that. Um, uh, we have some sample libraries of pianos and marimbas and various kinds of things. I record a bunch of uh, stuff and it's funny, about 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I took six months off. This was right before radio, uh, right before my radio career became a career. And I, rec I recorded all this stuff, like field recordings. I traveled through Lebanon and recorded all these different sounds and music. I still use that stuff. I'll go back to that time and just pull bits and, of those recordings and use them in, in various shows. Uh, I'll steal tiny bits of music, you know, like little, little fragments and then loop them and then smear them and do something that hopefully is unrecognizable. Uh, there's all kinds of things that we'll do. Um, Sometimes basic piano, you know, sometimes you just want like a piano with, with a big reverb. So I, I have a piano I really like there, which is a sample library. Um, but off, like the stuff I really like to do if I have time, uh, which increasingly I don't, is to try and sample something from the real world and then warp it. I feel like that to me gets to, spiritually to the heart of the sound of the show. When you take something from the real world and you just warp it. So we're in your home studio here in Brooklyn and looking around, you've got some amazing old gear in here. Do you actually use the Moog? I do use the Moog. This is, it's a Moog line, what is it, line six? No, 606. It's an old Moog. So it, it was a, it was made in the 60s. I think it was like a partnership between Moog and Oberheim. Uh, and it's terrible in the sense that it can't stay in tune. So like you go from like C all the way up to C and by the time you get to the top, it's like way out of tune. But um, it's got all these great oscillators and weird LFOs and things that you can make very sort of sci-fi, like 50s sci-fi sounds with it. So like that kind of stuff. 
So I use that a lot for just when you need some kind of wishy-washy, uh, space-agey kind of sound. Um, and I bought it, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, I can't remember exactly when. Um, a lot of the stuff, I at one point had like 10 different things, but I've, I've pared down. But this is stuff I just collected over the last 15 years. And, um, and uh, like the, the Roland, um, is it a Juno 6, I think? Yeah. Uh, that's a little more playable. So I'll use that for pads and sort of more, that sort of lovely, warm, analog, synthy, quasi-string sound that you can get that you, it's usually not a foreground sound, but I'll put it kind of in the background to sort of thicken up other stuff. Um, you know, I don't use it as much as I'd like to. You talk about it like it's cooking. Dylan described himself as your sous chef. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it is about, a lot of it is trying to get the textures and the ingredients to behave the way you want them to, which I imagine is like a chef's problem. You know, they're, you're constantly, like the way they poke at meat to figure out if it's done, constantly doing that with the sound, like putting stuff in, just, yeah, does it feel big enough, it feels thick enough? And then so much of the late stages is like, you've got 12 tracks and you're just trying to kind of like pull them back so that the, they, they give this just enough space for the words. So you have all the sound, but it ducks down so that you can have a little bit of talking and then comes back up and ducks back down. And, and so like so much of it is about trying to get the ingredients to behave. Can you talk a little bit about how you handle voices on Radiolab? We use really simple mics. I mean, we use a Bayer MC something or other. Uh, and close miking. I mean, it's one of the things we, we do talk about. You know, you want to get really close. I, nev I don't like the sound of rooms, of unnecessary rooms. I, like, I love that thing that happens when you get the mic really close and then the mic starts to try and overcompensate for frequencies that aren't there and you get that sort of proximity effect where then a person suddenly fills the whole space. So you're always looking for that when you're miking somebody. But no, I mean, beyond that, it's like we use basic mics process everything with L2 and compress it a little bit, Waves L2 plugin, uh, so that it, it's loud. I mean, if you listen to us alongside other public radio, we are louder for sure. Uh, louder and lusher, lot, like more present, you know? So, I mean, Dylan sweats the mix pretty hard to try and get that effect. Uh, so maybe it's that, I don't know. I'm not sure. So you're now doing live shows with Radiolab, like in front of an audience. So does that give you a chance to play with visuals? Yeah, I mean, our last, our last uh, live show, our latest live show uh, was a very visual uh, presentation of the, day, the moment where the dinosaurs went extinct. It's a story we all think we know, but it turns out it was way more violent and dramatic than even like we were taught. So that had all kinds of video and images. We had three screens and a kind of triptych and there were all these different visuals happening on each of the three screens. And we spent a long time trying to figure out how, do, how, does, how does that work with the audio? When does the visuals take over and oh, let's pull that back. Uh, and when, you know, playing to the eye versus the ear becomes a real question because the eye wins almost all the time. So like, it was a really great education for, for me personally to do that show because we had all these visuals and there were so many times where you'd have a, an audio playing but then there'd just be this image and it was a static image and like all people could see was that image and they weren't listening and so you're like, oh, okay, well, it, it became 
about a kind of choreography where when to take the images away so that people could just kind of engage and then I so yeah I mean it was I love that new set of problems you know that feels very exciting to me uh, less for Robert because he's been doing that kind of stuff but for me uh, it was really exciting to have to have to figure out what the eye should be looking at you know that just felt like a cool problem have the live shows changed the radio shows at all no, it's, I mean, it hasn't changed the sound of it, really. It's given us a hunger to, to do those crazy experiments. I mean, the live show was a crazy experiment. If I could put you into my amygdala the two days before that, that sh show went up, I mean, that was, that was, as, that was abject terror. And, uh, and it's given us a hunger for like experimenting in ways that, that take you into that very scary place. Because um, you, you know, there are, there are moments of that live show where I felt like we were right back at the beginning and we were making it up as we go and we were inventing again and we literally were scared that it could fail. And it kind of did at times, but not really. And when it worked, it worked in a way you could have never imagined. And that's just so exciting after doing this for 11, 12 years. So it's given me a hunger for that kind of experimentation again. Um, but I think the show is in some sense a separate stream, you know? You talked earlier about the challenge of doing that um, episode about color and how to represent color with sound. Have there been other ideas or other shows where, like, you, you just couldn't solve that problem, where you, you couldn't figure out a way to communicate a particular concept with sound? I feel like I've encountered a lot of stories where it's not that you just have to see it, it's just somehow that words, it's, to use a cliched phrase, the words kind of get in the way. My version of that is that somehow if there's a, there are moments in stories that you tell where you can almost tell the story in sound and texture and music and the words kind of disappear. Uh, it's so much easier. Like some of the great filmmakers do that where like there's no dialogue, you know? I'm so jealous of that. Like uh, so much of what we do is so verbal. You have to just start, you have to say, to constantly speak. And then as me, as the editor, I have to take out the words. And so I feel like half the time I'm trying to kill words. Uh, I mean, I work with the most verbal man in the history of humanity. And so like, I'm constantly just cutting out uh, half lines to try and like, okay, what's the smallest amount of space that we can say this in? And that feels sometimes like a chore to have to constantly like do that. So I'm sure there have been times where we've encountered stories that have been too, too visual. Um, usually if we're really hooked by something, we'll do it anyways. Uh, we'll find a way. And again, that's where that idea of like music as metaphor really comes into play. Like, how can we do this musically? Um, you know, how can we take each little actor and make them into a tone and then the tones can come together into a chord. And when people hear that, they hear something else. Like those are the kinds of things that we, we talk about uh, a lot to try and get through those things. But yeah, I'm jealous of, I'm jealous of the wordless movie. I feel like one day I'd like to make one. So you've been doing Radio Lab for 10 or 11 years at this point. How does this stay fresh for you? What, uh, what keeps you engaged with the show? And like, what excites you and gets you up in the morning? Different things on different days get me up in the morning. Some days it's some new plugin I've bought. And I'm like, I really want to see what I can do with this plugin. Some days it's some new story that we've never worked on before. And it's like, wow, what would Radio Lab's approach to the legal foundation for the war on terror. What would that sound like? That's an exciting question. So that gets me up sometimes. Sometimes it's getting to see 
a producer do something and watch their wings kind of expand. And so sometimes it's about watching the staff step forward and sometimes that's what's exciting. Sometimes it's getting on stage in front of 2,000 people uh, and the terror of that, that wakes you up in the morning for sure. So it's different things. I mean, that's part of the beauty of Radiolab is that it somehow creates all of these different fascinating problems and in challenges. But I say like if I had to just rewind it all and really just think about like what far and away, what really is the engine for, for me, it, it's some, it comes from the, playing with the materials. And it is, pure, it, it is a kind of purely musical act at the end of the day for me. It's, so, it's since gotten layered with so many other things, but at the end of the day, it does come down to like trying to figure out how this note goes with that note, and then this note goes with that note. And how can I make them dance together? It's like that question in the end. So that was my conversation with Jad Abumrad, the uh, creator and host and producer of Radiolab, uh, which you can find on uh, radiolab.org. They've got their own great podcast that uh, I listen to every week. Um, and it's some of the best produced sounding stuff out there. So enjoy it. That's, uh, that's another episode from the Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast, Conversations with Sound Artists. Thanks. Thanks.